This is Tell Me What to Read, the podcast of booktopia.com.au. I'm Nick Wasiliev, and today, for lovers of lighthearted, fun, romantic, breezy reads, I have the podcast for you. First up, Sarah McDooling sits down with the one and only Emily Henry to discuss her latest book, Book Lovers, dropping on May 3rd. And then Ben Hunter sits down with Tony Jordan to discuss her new book, Dinner with the Schnabels. Check the show notes below for timestamps of all interviews. Now, over to our interview with Emily Henry, author of Book Lovers. Hi, I'm Sarah McDooling, and I am super excited to be talking today with Emily Henry, best-selling author of Beat Trees and You and Me on Vacation, about her upcoming release, Book Lovers. Emily, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. So for the people listening who haven't been as lucky as I am to have read this book, um, can you tell them a bit about what to expect in Book Lovers? Yeah, so Book Lovers is about this very type A ambitious career woman who's a literary agent. Her name is Nora Stevens. And Nora has this problem, which is that she keeps getting dumped for women who are her polar opposite, women who are sort of small town sweethearts who, you know, come from these big loving families and and don't really care about like material things and, you know, like live in small quaint towns and love that life and all of that. And she keeps getting dumped for this other kind of woman. And so because of that, her younger sister Libby convinces Nora that what she really needs to do is have her own sort of transformative small town love story like her exes keep having. So Libby and Nora go away to this small town in the mountains of North Carolina for a whole month to kind of complete this checklist of, you know, small town love story tropes and that sort of thing. And while Nora is there kind of trying to see if she can have this small town love story that changes her view of the world, she keeps running into her nemesis from back in New York City, Charlie Lastra, who is an editor who turned down Nora's book a couple of years prior and in kind of the most insulting way. And ever since then, she has really disliked this man and they just keep running into each other. So it's sort of um, my take on like the stereotypical Hallmark, like Christmas movie. It's not a holiday book, but the whole, you know, small town sweetheart changes like a city person's life. It was my, my take on that where I wanted to kind of, um, use the same narrative structure, but put Nora, put Nora um, kind of in combat with this person who actually was like, just like her. I love Nora so much. Thank you. Um, I, I have to Nora. say, she's such a great character. And I love how you took that familiar stereotype that I think we've all, we've all seen that slick blonde career yes. peloton owning girlfriend who yes. <laughs> ends up getting dumped when the hero meets the nice wholesome small town girl right. and just overturned the whole thing by making her the heroine um where did your first spark of inspiration for nora come from was she inspired by a particular example of that character type or more general it was more general. It was because actually I was watching, you know, kind of a, a flurry of Hallmark Christmas movies. And I love, I really do love that story. So that I feel like I need to get out ahead of time. You know, like I tend to toy with tropes and kind of tease them and all that, but I'm almost always using something that I like 
just do love. And so even though I love that structure, I did notice that the, the morality of it, when, when you see so many of the same story, you start to think like, this isn't just making a statement about like, oh, this is what this one particular character needs for her life. She actually wants to be in the small town with like, you know, the country doctor or whatever. It starts to feel more like a, an overarching statement about what is the right kind of woman and what is the right kind of life and what makes um, a good woman and a woman deserving of love. And so I was kind of curious to play with that, but just beyond that, I think I'm really fascinated by sort of the more iconic of those characters, like um, Meredith Blake in the Parent Trap remake and um, the Devil Wears Prada, I am blanking on the character's name, but everyone knows her. I'm just really fascinated by how often we kind of present this character who's this woman who has everything and she walks into the office in the morning and she throws her coat in her assistant's face and her coffee's not hot enough and she, you know, works until <laughs> like, the, you know, it's pitch black in the office. And I was really curious to kind of play with that character and see what made that character that way. And you know, I think so much of fiction for me is about building empathy and understanding people better. And so it was really fun to take this character who we do have all these little things that we take as kind of shorthand for like, she's shallow and she's bad or whatever. And I wanted to see where those little cliche details actually came from. Like, why does this woman love her Peloton so much? <laughs> because she has a reason, like she has the reason that she loves this bike. I, it really hit a, a note for me because I'm, I'm my favorite example of this character type is um, the Baroness in The Sound of Music. Yes. And when you watch that, I think as a child, you're like, oh, well, she's the evil one and she doesn't right. get the guy. But as you grow older, you watch and you just think, man, she's a class act. Like, yeah. she's really, she's so cool. She well, should get her even, own story. And, and you've kind yeah. of given that stereotype her own story here with Book Brothers. Yeah, I think like even as kids, all of the kind of Disney animated media that we took in where, you know, there's a kind of pretty that Disney would use to be like, this is a good person. She's got the big doe eyes, um, you know, like the, the down loose hair. They're like, this is how you can tell someone's good. And then the other women, they either are like, they're ugly and that's how you know they're bad or <laughs> they have really severe eyebrows. And I have a joke with one of my closest friends who has very severe eyebrows. Everybody thinks she's so mean, like when they meet her. And we've always like joked, like, it's just because you have like Disney villain eyebrows. Like they just can't get past that. Like that's all they see is you have these sharp, dark brows. And they're like, she's, she's bad. She's mean pretty. Yeah. Yes, mean pretty. Exactly. You're like, she has a poison apple. Uh, well, I'd love to talk about tropes a little more, actually. I'm a huge appreciator of tropes, particularly romantic tropes. I can't get enough of them. And especially enjoy when people play around with them and put a refreshing twist on things, which is what you do so well. Um, so far in, you know, in Beat Read and You and Me on Vacation, you've taken like, and correct me if there's some I'm forgetting, but you've sort of got opposites attract and rivals to lovers and friends to lovers. And, and now here in Book Lovers, you've got a little element of enemies to lovers but wrapped up in this all these delightfully clever things you're doing with the trope of that fish out of water big city character in a small town um 
And these are like, if, you, if I were to write a list of all of my favorite things, <laughs> like the, these traits would all be on that list. So what I wanted to ask you was, if you had to pick your favorite romantic trope of all time, A, what would you pick? And B, do you have a favorite example of that trope oh, done just oh right? Oh my gosh, that is such a good question. I think that when... I, oh, there are so many answers, and I feel like depending on the day of the week, I would say something different. In historical romance, I really, really, really do love the marriage of convenience. Um, and I, I think it's fun that some contemporary romance writers have kind of found ways to play with that in, in some form. Um, in contemporary, I do really, really love enemies to lovers, but I also think that it, I, I think that I'm really picky about it because I think it's, it's such a delicate balance for me where there are certain kinds of barbs that I'm like, oh, you just went too far and I can never, I can never accept this pairing anymore. Like I, I have, there's just a, a lack of respect there. But then also I think a lot of times when we talk about enemies to lovers, there really is just sort of like a couple who like kind of love bickering with each other in the beginning and they're not really enemies and in a way you know Nora and Charlie definitely got get off on the wrong foot and really she really really does dislike him but I feel like pretty quickly it's like oh they're just good at arguing um <laughs> and I mean I know this is kind of the simple go-to answer but I do feel like the hating game is what taught all of us how much we love enemies to lovers like all of our <laughs> us newer romance readers read that when it came out and we're just like oh no, I'm going to be chasing the high of this for the rest of my life. Um, and I do still sort of feel that way where it's like every Sally Thorne book, I'm just like, this is like the balm that my soul needs to go on in the post-hating game world. Um, <laughs> so I think that one is probably like my favorite example. And then also, I'm sorry, this is such a long-winded answer, but my friend Martha Hunt, who writes lovely, funny romps of historical romance novels, also talks about like the micro tropes that are just sort of like the little, you know, the sick bed thing or the one bed, you know, mini trope sort of thing. And I do really love like the sick bed trope where one person is caring for the other. It's like always, always appreciated, always accepted. Also present in Hating Game, so. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. I know. I think I learned so much about what works for me as a reader by reading Hating Game. And it really, it really taught me what I'm like looking for when I walk into the romance section of a bookstore. I, I love the romance genre, um, but you know, I feel like there are some, there are some that are just magic that just really just hit the spot. I would put all of your romances in that category. Um, so I just wanted to ask you uh, for some insight in what you think the secret is to creating a good romance. Like what elements do you think need to be there to really capture the hearts of your readers? I think there's a couple of things. For me, I really do love a couple with a sense of humor. And I mean, you can just, there are just some writers who are just naturally so funny. And I think Sally Thorne is a really good example. And I think um, Talia Hibbert is another good example where it's like the humor is just baked in there. And so you instantly feel like you have this very distinct viewpoint of the characters because you're seeing like what they think is funny. But I also think that there's something to be said about the kind of inconsistencies in characters. Like that's something I'm really drawn to. Like, I, you know, we're, we're obviously going very spoiler light for this conversation and we, we discussed that ahead of time.
But with Charlie, I had a really fun time writing this character who seems so thoroughly like this kind of archetype that we're familiar with and love, you know, the, the broody kind of scowly man. But it's really funny and fun for me as a reader and a writer to, to pick out all the little things that don't fit with that and all the little things that are surprising. And I think when you're getting to know someone, those are so often the things that really like tickle you and make you fall in love with a person to just be like, what? Like you're into that. Like I never would have guessed that you like collect antique spoons. Like you're the, whatever, <laughs> that's not a specific, that's not a real example. But I think that the things that make me really fall in love with characters and believe that they're real people and um, fall in love with them just wholly are just those little details that take them from being the archetypes we love to feeling like someone you can meet. Ah, oh, that's such a good answer. <laughs> I'm glad you think so, because I feel like I just got off a roller coaster and like, what did I? I was just going in circles there. But yeah, I just, I just love the characters who get kind of messy, I think. That's really what I'm drawn to as a reader. Yes. Also with humorous dialogue, which um, mm. I think is an important ingredient. I also really appreciate in every one of your romances, you have really strong family and friends side characters, which um, I think in every romance I've ever really loved, that's always present. And I feel it must be quite hard to balance that, to have well-rounded three-dimensional side characters and still balance the romance between the two leads. Do you, do you have, have you ever struggled with that? Oh yeah, completely. Um, I mean, with book lovers, Libby, Nora's younger sister is a pretty a serious character, a pretty major character, but in earlier drafts, she wasn't. And in kind of trying to get to know Nora and Charlie better, I just found myself going back to their family so much. I think that so often, weirdly enough, like the things that we went through as kids still shape us when we're 30, 40, 50, whatever. And so in trying to get to know Nora and Charlie better, I really kept coming back to Libby and Nora's relationship with Libby. And that's how she kind of got threaded through. But at the same time, like we've all been there where you're reading a romance novel and you're so into the couple, you, you love the romantic tension. And then there's sort of like the B plot threaded through. And every time you're in that section, you're like, okay, let's just get back to the couple. And that's, that's really hard. But I think as a writer, I'm, I'm always thinking that the the tension and the conflict in the main romantic relationship is usually coming from history and so those familial relationships are actually really important to forming it and so i think it helps with the balance to think of all of those interactions with the side characters as still being sort of essential for the romantic arc if that makes sense yeah no total sense i feel like you know again i'll keep things spoiler free but in book lovers everything that um nora goes through with libby these are all like struggles that are independent from the romance but really tied to the journey that she's on and so it all really echoes really well um Thank in you. theme Thank you. um so i believe your first book was published according to wikipedia in 2016 yes. <laughs> um, and you've published several young adult novels as well as um, your two soon to be three romances um, and I, I would just like to pause to say that I also love reading YA so um, yes. these are genres that I adore. Um, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about sort of what it's like 
um, switching genres or what the experience of writing young adult is versus romance and also maybe just a little bit about your journey to publication and yeah. how that all came about. Yeah, so I think, you know, I started writing young adult because I, that's what I was reading. And I think a lot of us, you know, voracious readers experienced that where there was like Harry Potter and then Twilight and then from there, a lot of people like in the millennial generation, especially, I feel like we're like, oh, now there are books with kind of this fast pace, this very, um, I say formulaic in a good way, like this sort of formulaic commercial structure and also like a lot of attention to emotion and a lot of um, kind of emphasis on romance and whatever. So that was just what I was reading. And so I'd always been a writer um, to, to some extent, you know, more sometimes than others. But when I started to write seriously, I was just, you know, writing the kind of thing that I was reading. And so that was YA. And then when I graduated from college and kept writing and started querying and all of that, I was still doing YA and all that time. And I think that the thing that really excited me about it was this sort of coming of age aspect. And so with my first four books, it was, um, or th there were, I wrote three young adult novels and then I co-wrote one with a friend. And with all of those, I was kind of tuning into different pieces of the coming of age story or different variations of that. And then, and I loved that and I still might do more of that at some point, but at a certain point, I think I started having like my late twenties crisis and was like, oh, it's happening again. Like no one had ever told me or I was just too stupid to listen, but I had no idea that there was going to be this second serious coming of age in my life where everything felt like it was called into question and my view of the world, my view of myself, my identity, all of that just felt hugely in flux. And I felt like I had kind of, at least for the time, you know, only having so much um, hindsight built up, I, I felt like I had said everything I could about that teenage coming of age. And then I was having all these experiences that felt kind of the same as like, you know, when you're a teenager and like trying to figure out who you are. So I wrote Beach Read really just for myself. I didn't know at the time I hadn't really read any romance and um, I didn't really know if it was a book that would be able to be sold or anything like that, but I kind of had some downtime between YA projects and I was <laughs> just like in a dark place. The world felt very dark and scary and I wanted to immerse myself in something that was just really fun and felt really good. And so then I accidentally wrote a book about a girl who's mourning the death of her father, <laughs> as you do when you want something fun and light. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it was a love story too. And, and it felt like this way of sort of investigating some of these th darker thoughts and feelings and, you know, this, this sensation of the world being in flux. It felt like a safe way to do that because it was all happening within this love story where I knew from the very beginning, these people are going to end up together. Like this is going to be my, my version of a rom-com, which is funny, I think, but also kind of sad. Um, and yeah, it just was such a blissful experience. I wrote it very quickly and I didn't tell anyone about it for at least a year. It might've been two years before I even was like, by the way, I wrote <laughs> one of these. Um, so it was just such a good time. And it was also the first time I, I had written something purely for myself in a few years, because once you start actually publishing books, you do have this weird shift 
where you're always kind of thinking like, well, what are people on Goodreads going to think about this? <laughs> like, will they like this? Will they hate this? Instead of just thinking like, oh, what do I think that the story requires? And so having this sort of secret project that nobody asked for or wanted from me was just such a good time. And then a couple of years later, um, I was sort of watching kind of the post Sally Thorne, like boom of contemporary romance where Jasmine Guillory and Helen Huang were kind of blowing up and doing different cool things in the space. And so at that point I told my agent like, oh, by the way, I actually do have a book that I think is sort of like that, that I never mentioned because I didn't know if anybody like was reading this at this point. Um, so the, the move into, into the romance space was just like, I kind of just tripped and fell into it and really, really loved it. But I do feel like every book that I'm writing right now is still a coming of age and it's just that like 30 year mark. And honestly, I'm excited. I, I think that my characters will continue to age as I know more about the world. And I'm excited to write characters who are 40 and 50 and 60. If I get to, you know, live as long as I'm planning on, I'll be writing 100 <laughs> year old characters at some point. So um, yeah, I just think it was like a really big revelation to me to realize that the coming of age like does not stop ever. We really do just keep coming of certain ages. Yes. And it's like terrible every time. And then you feel better <laughs> afterward. We're like, can you rem like remember your 20s? Those were awful. Um, and then, you know, and then next thing you know, you're like 39. You're like, oh, no, it's <laughs> happening again. It never stops. It's a really good point, I feel, actually. We associate the coming of age so much with moving in, out of childhood and into adulthood. But yeah. adulthood has many stages and phases. Yeah. And we act like you're just going to be fully baked when you're 18 years old and unfortunately or fortunately that's not the case hmm. well okay and so now 2022 you're an internationally best-selling author and your books are massive trenders on booktop which i think the whole publishing industry has realized is the best thing that can happen to a book these days yeah. nothing is selling books like tiktoks at the moment sorry nothing is selling books like tiktoks at the moment so true um, so what has that been like for you, seeing your books take off in such a massive way in that space? I mean, it's been really wild because on the one hand, you know, like it's been happening during a global pandemic and, you know, I haven't been out and about as much as I normally would. And so I'm vaguely aware that it's happening. I keep getting like the good news emails, but it also still feels sort of like nothing's changed. Like I'm still just in my house and writing my little books on my little computer. Um, but it's really, I don't, I, I don't know. It, I am deeply, deeply, deeply appreciative of it. And I also feel like I am so glad that this did not happen for me with my first couple of books, because I feel like I would not have been prepared at all. It would have ruined me forever. Like I probably would have become just like an absolute monster in some way. And instead <laughs> I'm just like, wow, this is really cool. And someday it'll go away. But right now I'm trying to just like enjoy it. Um, and I'm, I'm so appreciative to all the book talk people who have really made my career what it is. And I think it's also just like a funny little reminder that teenagers have always been the ones who I know it's not only teenagers on book talk but you know a lot of it's like young people largely yeah. I mean I'm not on TikTok I feel like I can't handle it um, <laughs> but like it's just a good reminder that it's like young people have always kind of been the tastemakers and it's just like funny and amazing and I feel so grateful I'm like 
you can't really deserve the kind of success that I've been given. It's always a gift. And so I'm just like in awe and very appreciative and trying to stay human and not become the worst <laughs> kind of <laughs> like faux mini celebrity all the time. Well, I think it's very well deserved. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I've read a lot of books because of TikTok and yes. like not all of them are ones where I understand the hype, but mm -hmm. um, I didn't actually come to your books through TikTok. However, I totally understand why they chose there. And I feel like Thank in this you. case, if you heard hype around any Emily Henry books, it's, it's well deserved. Thank you so much. That's really nice. So we're, we're pretty much out of time, but I just wrap up asking a question that you may not be able to answer because um, we're in the lead up to publication of Book Lovers at the moment. I don't know if you're able to talk about what comes after that, but do you have anything in the works that you're able to tell us about? I do have something in the works. I don't think I can really share almost any identifying detail, but as of now, if I can get my act together, it will be out next summer. That's the hope and the plan, the schedule we are optimistically going with, um, and it will be in the same vein as my last three. So if you liked those, there's a pretty good chance you like this one. Um, I'm, you know, I'm definitely at that, that stage where it's like hour to hour is like how I feel about it. It's like, oh, I love this book and it's great. And then also like, I'm going to check my laptop out the window. <laughs> so in one year's time, this book will be good and hopefully on bookshelves. Well, I'm enormously glad to hear that. I liked, I need to get my Emily Henry hit at least once every 12 months. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, Emily, thank you so, so much for joining us today. It has been such a pleasure to meet you and so wonderful chatting with you. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, and for everyone listening, you can grab your copy of Book Lovers by Emily Henry or any of her amazing backlist titles, all of which I highly recommend, at your local bookstore or online at Booktopia. Thanks for listening and never stop reading. Now, over to our interview with Tony Jordan, author of Dinner with the Schnabels. Hello, I'm Ben Hunter, Booktopia's Fiction Category Manager. And today with me on the pod is Toni Jordan. Uh, she is a beloved Melbourne author. And I've just stuck my nose into her new creation. And I can see exactly why she counts Liam Moriarty and uh, people like Graham Simpson among her many fans. Uh, her previous books, Nine Days, The Fragments, Edition and our tiny useless hearts have seen her listed for a whole cacophony of literary prizes. And her latest book um, is out now and it is called Dinner with the Schnabels. Tony Jordan, thanks for giving me some time today. Ben, thank you very much for having me on the pod. I didn't know it was called the pod. Uh, I call it the pod. I like the sound of the pod. So let's, I let's like roll the sound with of that. The pod. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, yeah, I picked up. Uh, this novel and I, I I wasn't ready for it. I didn't think it was the book that I needed in my life but I I really did <laughs> it's it's funny your your publisher Hachette describes it as heartwarming and hilarious uh, which is alliteration I can get behind how did this story of modern chaos come to you 
Well, for a start, someone telling you up front it's heartwarming and hilarious is a lot of pressure, Ben, because it's very easy to fall down on the job on both those things. So um, I'm, I'm hoping that they landed for you. Um, but really, it came out of the things I was streaming on television, actually, in 2020. I watched so much television. I, I was just like a couch potato person. And um, but the shows that I found myself watching were different programs that I would have watched before. So I watched like all of Schitt's Creek, maybe twice. I watched Ted Lasso. I watched all these kind of cozy, um, funny shows about very flawed people doing often wrong things for the right reasons and stuffing things up. And I just thought, you know, I wouldn't mind giving a crack at writing a book like that. That's brilliant. I, I have uh, had my life saved a little bit by Ted Lasso in the last uh, 12 months and the amount of love for Schitt's Creek and Ted Lasso in, in our, our office circle is palpable. <laughs> and this, is, this does take a note from those kinds of shows, doesn't it? Um, uh, let's, let's start with your kind of the character whose eyes we see most of this action unfurl through is, is Simon. And my, my first impression of Simon, well, you, you describe him as a kind of adrift looking dude. And um, immediately walking into his world, uh, I was like, oh, this is meant to be really funny, but it is stressing me out. <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> he's not helping himself, and no, I, no. all of his uh, all of his problems, I just they just they just clung to me like a uh, <laughs> like iron filings on my magnet body, oh, my and it goodness. weighed me down. But I was, but then he he won me very quickly. Uh, so tell me about Simon and Look, his world. He's in a bad place, absolutely, <laughs> um, and he's in that kind of bad place where it's pretty easy. Um, to tell what he should be doing from the outside. But sometimes you just don't have it inside yourself to do those things that you need to be doing. Um, so, uh, but this is a space, you know, I really like in fiction. I really like writing things where, you know, the reader has different ideas from the main character. So we're seeing the world through Simon's eyes. You know, he's, he's a bit hopeless. Like, I hope he's adorable, but he is kind of hopeless. So I'm hoping that the reader is in a place where they go, no, Simon, no, don't, what, no, what are you? Um, and, and sort of picking up on all the things he's misinterpreting about the world around him. Yes, and uh, his, his world, it revolves around his wife, Tansy, and his you know, Tansy is just the love of his life. Uh, he adores her, which is really his big redeeming thing. Um, and their two uh, children, uh, Mia and Lockie, they are brilliant. Um, <laughs> but there's there's all of these struggles that kind of weigh them down. And uh, Tansy, she has... Um, she has family <laughs> and, um, and they the are the schnabels yeah. and the schnabels come to dinner. And uh, I think when um, he, he just, he says dinner with the schnabels, that, that could be the title of the, the scariest horror film you've, you'd ever seen. So who are the schnabels? 
Well, Simon has married into this family, Tansy's family. Um, she has an older sister, Kylie, and a younger brother, Nick. And she also has a half-sibling, a half-sister, who we meet um, early on in the book, Monica. And then she has her mother, Gloria. Um, so Simon is kind of overwhelmed <laughs> by this by this family because they're they're kind of a hands-on kind of people and they have very definite ideas about what Simon should be doing with his life. Um, I think it's it's easier for Tansy herself because she's grown up with them and she kind of knows how to manage them in her head and she doesn't let things phase her. But for Simon, who's thrust into this family, um, it's all a bit challenging for him. He doesn't know the things he should be pushing against and the things he should be embracing about them. So um, they're kind of in his face. Yeah, and this uh, Monica is a new addition <laughs> to the ensemble, right? She's, yeah, she's yeah. a half-sibling who has been uh, not even estranged, like they've, they've not met her before. And uh, this uh, sounds remarkable, but, but it happens, right? Um, uh, parents uh, separate and start second families, and yep. it's often not until later in life that the siblings will even get a, a whiff of each other. And um, uh, Mon or Monica, <laughs> Santa Monica, is is someone uh, very very different, uh, and it's it's almost like. Uh, a straw to break camels back in, in the world of, of, of Simon and uh, his very fragile um, a kind of nuclear family, which is on Struggle Street. He's, he's between uh, gigs. Uh, they are out of their family home. Uh, the pandemic has not been kind to them. He, as you say, he is, he is struggling. Um, and then just one more schnabel <laughs> is just <laughs> enough to just set the house alight. Yeah, it's the last thing he needs, really, because also he, you know, he's he's a father of two. He's unemployed. Um, he's, you know, not really looking after himself in any meaningful way. Um, and then this much younger kind of seemingly successful, sparky kind of person arrives on his doorstep with this rush of energy. And it just kind of makes him feel in contrast about a million years old and <laughs> completely past it. So, you know, it just adds to those challenges. But the whole week, um, it's set over a course of one week, this book, because I really wanted something that had that pacey kind of episodic feel. And it's it's a bit of a challenge constructing a plot where I, I knew from the outset then that I didn't want anything actually terrible to happen. So no murders, no uncovering of anything, you know, incredibly terrible. Um, and then I was thinking, how can I still structure kind of a bit of narrative tension without, with pretty low stakes? Um, so uh, he has a week to landscape a garden because um, <laughs> the family want to have a function in, in a friend's garden and, and they've given him one week to do it. But things just keep derailing and we just can't seem to manage to, to make a start of it. So you know, all these things kind of interrupt his his flow for the week and he just gets in a worse and worse position. Yeah, I've read um, so many uh, high-stakes thrillers <laughs> this year today. <laughs> um, but uh, Simon getting those pavers in 
was was something that I was just sweating literal <laughs> bullets over. Uh, when they when they don't deliver it correctly and on time, I just I was ready to hit the roof. I was just I, I was <laughs> and, and is... Simon Simon reaches for the whiskey bottle and I was ready to reach for the whiskey bottle too. It's it's a lot. <laughs> That is possibly the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me about this book. Um, but, but, yeah, it's really what I, because it's the, it's the small irritations of life often that throw us off, right? Like things when you look back, at, at, you know, even a month later you can't even remember. But at the time it's enormous drama. Life kind of swings between these genuinely enormous life-threatening things and these small irritations that really give us the same kind of vibe as if it was something really important so I wanted to kind of capture that feel of um, none of these are big things right nobody's gonna die but it's kind of it's still really disruptive to your life and throws you out of whack Mm -hmm. so on on one on one end of the spectrum we have um, Monica crashing into things who is uh, a 20 something and very online and has just a completely different uh, aura and language to everyone around her. Uh, you've got Simon and, and Tansy in the middle of things. On the other kind of end of the spectrum, there's Gloria, Tansy's mum, who uh, is obviously older and has a, a very firm idea of how things should operate. And I think between between the the youth and then the next generation, they're really pincered, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Look, Simon and Tansy are trapped in the middle. So so Tansy's mother Gloria is was really my favourite character to write, and um, she was just you know I I had to actually be a little bit judicious about the scenes I introduced her into because every single scene she would just take over. And I had to a number of times stop and say, no, this is Simon's story. We've got to focus on Simon. Like we can't have Gloria kind of dominating every single scene that she pops into. But she's just kind of a contrary person. She's, you know, if you stated something, she would say, absolutely not, that's rubbish. And if you then took her view, she would take the previous view. Like she just can't agree with anybody and she just is spiky and she just... Um, thinks she should be queen of the world and tell and tell everybody how to run things and um, a character like that you know with so much energy um, that's again kind of one of the challenges of the low stakes book like I can't have people just drifting around I have to kind of summon up a bit of energy because I don't have car chases and I don't have serial killer hunts or anything um, kind of dramatic going on so I've got to keep the energy of the characters up and she was just a dream for that. She certainly, <laughs> she certainly raises the stakes. That's, um, uh, this is also a post-pandemic novel, uh, which is uh, interesting, you know, in, in this kind of um, uh, <laughs> seemingly light but actually really heavy. <laughs> yeah. Look, it was a um, choice. It was a choice. Yeah. yeah. Uh, tell me about the choice. Well, I... I- in deciding to make something kind of happy and low stakes and fun to, to uh, kind of duplicate in fiction those TV shows I was watching, I wanted the sense of coming out of things. Like mm. everything was, was over. And, of course, when I'm writing it, I couldn't actually know when everything was going to be over. Um, so I had to make kind of best judgment calls about 
you know, what I thought the feeling would be. So it's it's certainly, you know, mentioned in there. It's a, it's a book set in the real world. I want it to be, wanted it to be as realistic as possible. Um, so there's, you know, brief mentions, but I'm try, I was trying to set it now, like where we are now. So there's still things going on and there's still, you know, stuff in the background and there's all that, but it's not, it's not at the height of things. I don't have to dwell on it. I don't have to explain things. Um, people have a kind of an a, a, a unconscious understanding of what everybody's been through and what everything is like. And, and you know, it, it's, people like Simon, Simon particularly, really kind of felt it hard. He, he was used to being the master of his universe. You know, he had a business and he had staff and he had, you know, he kind of imagined he had his stuff together and then he's derailed by circumstances beyond his control. And it's very tempting to be furious at that when really what are you going to be furious at a virus like it's it's kind of a ridiculous concept the virus doesn't care that you're mad at it <laughs> yeah well said there's 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 a lot to be upset about <laughs> in this day and age and it's hard to hard to direct that energy into something that's positive absolutely right that, that's absolutely right so I wanted kind of the the theme of the book to be a deliberate choice about okay of course we can all sit around and uh, moan about things but how can we kind of develop a mindset that gives us a bit more resilience and this is kind of Simon's challenge I guess to to try and adjust his mindset so that uh, everything is not quite as dreadful as it might otherwise be. That's really well said I, I that, that's kind of what I wanted to ask next is you know, he's in this place where a wave of problems is kind of crashing over him you know uh, not enough sex, not enough money, uh, not enough status, uh, uh, becoming older, becoming irrelevant, um, losing power to actually give his wife and kids the, the world that they deserve or he desires for them um, and, and not getting those pavers in on time. <laughs> uh, but what, what is it that he, he really needs that's that's kind of the question that was on the the tip of my tongue um reading this thing and I think I think you've just nailed it it's the resilience thing isn't it we yeah. <laughs> we have to build that again after having it all knocked down because all we can really control is the stuff between our ears right so you know if you can develop some kind of handle on how to um, how to process things in a in a different fashion so you're not so continually swayed by all these external events you know I think that's like I, I think he he gets the, he gets there toward the end I think he does you know manage it um, but it's a really hard week for him and I mean the little it's the little things that defeat us you know his fridge breaks down right so you know he's got to think about how am I going to afford to get the fridge repaired or worse worse than that get a new fridge and then he has to wait home for the fridge repairman like these are not big things but they're sometimes enough on top of everything else to just be enormously like just a pain and and it's these kind of as you say straws that can really <laughs> can really stuff you around um but I, I'm hoping that you know the reader is is thinking, come on, Simon, get it together, man. So that's kind of my hope. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the the um, the gorgeous um, uh, early uh, marketing copy that the publisher sends out 
um, I, I love getting these books because um, I get to see that authors make spelling mistakes and things like that, and that <laughs> they are real humans. Um, uh, but it it, it uh, just you know it's got all its recommendations for bringing the book into market, and it and it says this is the perfect book for Mother's Day. And uh, um, that that kind of attempted uh, another question in me, which is you know <laughs> who is this book for? I mean, I mm-hmm. I I, um, I you know I got the impression that this is. This is a book for my mom. This isn't a book for me. But I, I'm like all over this. Uh, so yeah, who, who did you have a reader in mind when you write this, or did you just kind of write it for yourself and I, I really let it go just, into the world? <laughs> I really just decided that everybody needs a smile right now, and I was just mm. gonna do my best. And that was part of the construction of the family. So I, I'm trying to think of characters that speak to everybody. So I've got all ages. Uh, you know, as as wide a spread as I can possibly find that's reflective of the world that I live in anyway. And and sort of, um, yeah, something that, that really sums up this idea about um, if everybody smiles on reading this book, that will just be, <laughs> will be all I ask for. Um, I've written comedy before and I do really enjoy it, even though, as I said, it's scary because nobody has the same exactly the same sense of humor and it's very common to write to have something that I think is funny that no one else does and um it's it's a slightly dicey kind of operation um but you know I was think I I thought it was probably time to give it a go to to try and really lean into that comic view of the world what kind of books do you look for as a reader and has that changed over the years it definitely has changed over the years. Um, I uh, was kind of into the Russians um, as well when I was a young person. Um, but now I, I, what I really enjoy is a bit of weirdness, like somebody with a, a view of the world that's quite strange. And I, I like books that are not um, deadly serious. Like I know serious fiction can be gorgeous and there's enormous issues and things to be dealt with. But for me... Um, the world is a mix of funny and sad, like it's not one or the other. Mm. And I, I most of my books that have a blend of those two things. One more question I'll put in because you've been profound. Um, do you have advice that you would give to yourself as a, as, a, as a younger writer or are you still figuring it out day to day oh I'm still figuring it out day to day Ben like it's I I just want to do better I still just want to write better books and I try and read better books and I try and read how to write better books books about books um but uh I I wish I had been a young writer maybe that's the thing I didn't start writing my first novel until I was well in my 30s that was my first piece of fiction which was edition um I I wish I had have started earlier I wish someone had said to me as a younger person that writing is the most democratic and joyous art form you don't need any special equipment other than pen and paper Um, you don't need any you know expensive courses or qualifications you can get all those things of course but you don't need them to start there's a million examples you can get out of the library. Um, you can you can start anytime, any place, and once you begin, it'll be terrible, right? Your first attempt will be just terrible, and then the next attempt will be less terrible, and then after that, it just you'll get better at it. And it's 
I still find it absolutely addictive and just a joyous way to spend my time. Well, dinner with the Schnabels is addictive and joyous and it may be your least terrible book yet. Tony Jordan, <laughs> thank you for being on the Booktopia pod. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. And uh, you can get a copy of Dinner with the Schnabels and all of Tony Jordan's books from booktopia.com.au. Thanks to Emily Henry and Tony Jordan. You can find links to all books discussed today in our show notes or head over to booktopia.com.au. Join us next week as we sit down for an episode focused on Australian stories covering the latest releases in fiction from Australian authors, where we will be chatting with Hilda Hinton and Benjamin Stevenson. Thanks for listening and never stop reading.